Today on CXO Talk, we're speaking with somebody who unpacks the complexity of technology, the complexity of artificial intelligence, Amy Webb. She is a professor at NYU and the Business School, and she is the head, she is the founder of the Future Today Institute and a very, very interesting woman. Amy Webb, thank you so much for being here in CXO Talk. Of course. Thank you for having me. Amy, you, your book is just amazing. It's one of the best books that I've seen, and it's getting a lot of attention, and, it, and it's very well-deserved. So please, very briefly, tell us about your background. I think that's a good place to start. Sure. Um, so I have a maybe a strange job title. I'm a quantitative futurist. Um, my job is to use data to model emerging technology trends, um, and then to develop risk and opportunity scenarios uh, that are that tend to be longer term. So, for the most part, um, my organization, which has been around for 15 years, uh, advises the senior leadership at very large Fortune 100 companies. We also work with branches of the federal government and military. Um, and the purpose of this work is to help everybody see around corners, not make predictions, but rather make connections. Um, so. That's what I do. And all of the research that I do and all of our um, methodology and our tools, it's all open source and made, uh, made available to everybody for free. And the key thing is that these are not just guesses, but you, all of your, your predictions are backed by really intensive research. Right. So the methodology that, we've, that we use um, is uh, sort of a hybrid uh, between process thinking and big sky thinking. Um, but it's a very, very rigorous model. Uh, it requires a lot of um, uh, analysis using numbers. Um, and then there are parts of it that uh, require work in teams uh, where we have different perspectives um, rolling out the downstream implications of decisions that are being made. Now, Amy, you just released this f fascinating book called The Big Nine. So, what is the big nine? Let's start there. Sure. So in the course of the normal work that I do as a futurist uh, and one that pre predominantly focuses on emerging technologies, several years ago, I noticed that when researching artificial intelligence, which to be fair is a pretty big field, um, it seemed as though I kept coming back to the same companies over and over and over again. Um, and in fact, it was these companies, there were nine of them. These companies that are building the custom frameworks, uh, the custom silicon, it's their algorithms, um, it's their patents. They have the lion's share of patents in this space. Um, they're able to attract the top talent. Uh, they have the best partnerships with the best universities. And essentially, it's these nine companies who are building the rules and the systems and the business models for the future of artificial intelligence, and as a result of that, have a pretty significant influence on the future of work and everyday life. Um, so, so there are nine companies, three in China and six here in the United States. Do you want to list off who those companies are? Sure. So uh, the ones in China may not be familiar to everybody. They are Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Um, the best way to think about uh, Baidu is its U.S. cousin is Google. Um, Baidu is a gigantic search engine that has a lot of other um, subsidiaries and business verticals. It also has, much like Google, an autonomous driving unit. Um, Alibaba is sort of akin to Amazon. Um, Alibaba is enormous. 
Uh, it's an online retailer, but it has many other, again, many other facets, just like Amazon does into many other areas of life. Tencent uh, is part social network, part um, uh, fintech uh, payments processing system, uh, and is also uh, fairly big in, in the future of healthcare. So that's China. And in the United States are what I call the G-Mafia. So this is Google, Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, Apple, and Facebook. Uh, and together, um, it's these nine companies that, again, have, have quite a bit of influence on our futures. I want to remind everybody we're talking with Amy Webb, who just wrote this very interesting book called The Big Nine. So, Amy, artificial intelligence is an area that you seem very concerned about. Why? Why is that? The best way to think about AI is not as a singular technology or some kind of cool technology that's out on the horizon. Um, it's simply the, the next era of computing. And uh, we've had computers in some form now since the mid-1800s, believe it or not, as crazy as that sounds. The first era of computing was um, simple tabulation, automated using a machine. Uh, the second era, era of computing was programmable systems, and here we are in the third era. And, and all you really need to know about AI uh, is that um, this is a complicated system um, that uses data to make decisions for um, outcomes that somebody's determined in advance, which means that all of us are surrounded by artificial intelligence all day long. We just don't think about it in that way. Um, so something simple like when you're in your car and you're driving backwards, uh, if you're in a newer car, you'll hear beeping sounds uh, to make sure that you don't run over a scooter or a bicycle or hit a tree or something. Um, and there might be a little dashboard um, offering you a video of what you're driving uh, in front of, and it uses computer vision to help out that process. All of that um, is something called artificial narrow intelligence. And there are literally millions of examples of uh, artificial narrow intelligence that is in use in everyday life. Now, that doesn't seem bad. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the, problem that I'm starting to see arise is that artificial intelligence is on two developmental tracks that are fairly different. Um, so in China, those bat companies may be independent, but as Chinese companies, they uh, have to follow the leadership of the Chinese government. And uh, China has very different viewpoints on data and privacy, on freedom of speech and expression, and also how business ought to be done worldwide, and even what the geopolitical map should look like. Um, in the United States, our six companies, the G-Mafia, are publicly traded companies uh, with fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. And um, as a result, they're often under the gun and you know, significant pressure to push AI into the marketplace using commercial products as soon as possible. Um, so, so essentially what we have is consumerism and capitalism driving AI in half of the world and the other half of the world, um, the development of artificial intelligence being done so to further the ideas of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and uh, the challenge is that all of us are stuck in the middle, everyday people. There's very little transparency about how decisions are being made. Um, and, and there's not a, long, a lot of long-term planning at the uppermost levels of, of leadership um, to think about what all of this might mean 
10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now? We are starting to get some questions from Twitter, and we'll get to those in a minute, because I have some questions of my own, and as the as the moderator, I will assert moderator's privilege and, and ask you a couple of my own questions first. So, so Amy, this is all great, what you're saying, but how is this any different from other technologies? What's unique about this? Because the lack of transparency sounds like you have just described technology and government operations as they have been going for a long time. Sure. You know, I think that the key difference is that um, decisions that drastically affect everyday life are being made by algorithms who were designed, which were designed by, you know, a relatively small group of people working at just a few companies. Um, And that process is not in any way uh, meaningfully transparent. So what that means in practice is that if you're somebody who has graduated with a computer science degree and you're out looking for a job, um, as many people are looking for you know, jobs across many different fields, um, the hiring process is becoming automated. So rather than a human reading your resume, instead a system um, is looking through uh, all resumes uh, using pattern recognition and looking for anomalies or looking for areas that meet certain criteria. And we've already started to see evidence of weird biases. So if you're somebody with a computer science degree and you took a bunch of extracurricular courses on things like um, theology or comparative lit uh, or music, um, you know, to, to the algorithms that have been trained, um, those, those look like uh, anomalies um, and those resumes have been discarded. Now, the weird thing is that, you know, if I was a hiring manager, somebody who was adept and skilled and, and showed great promise in, you know, AI, uh, who also had a very broad worldview and lots of additional extracurricular, um, you know, inputs, to me, that's going to make a much better, more well-rounded employee. But because we've relegated some of that decision-making to an algorithm rather than a person, Um, those resumes are being discarded. And by the way, that's not just happening in in CS. Um, So so I would argue that this is a little different. I mean, governments tried to step in before to regulate, um, you know, our financial systems, uh, you know, parts of of our transportation systems. This is very different because AI is not um, the same type of technology. This is a system, a series of systems built by a relatively small number of people um, into which many new startups are plugging in. And those systems are predicated on making decisions um, using various pieces of our data. So, so that's where I think things are different this time around. So fundamentally, is your concern the consolidation of intellectual power as well as capital that is feeding this technology that is surrounding us combined with the lack of transparency? Is that, is that the core issue here? No, um, the core issue is that we aren't doing any long-term planning. So uh, these are publicly traded companies. And in our um, free market economy, I believe that these companies should have the opportunity to succeed. The challenge is that here in the United States, we don't have a single capital. Um, I, I do not believe that Washington, D.C. Is the, is the only capital of our country. Um, we have a nexus of three powers. So Washington, D.C., um, but also the financial center, which is New York, 
um, and the technology uh, epicenter, which is Silicon Valley along with the Pacific Northwest. So basically the, the, the West Coast. Um, and, and all three capitals of the United States are codependent. They, were, they, um, they may not always see it that way, uh, but, but the decisions that they make affect each other um, and they can't survive without each other. And the problem is that I see very little evidence of um, strategic long-term planning uh, in any of these places. And so as a result of that, um, you know, we don't see the kind of risk modeling that you might see in other areas because speed is prioritized over safety again and again when it comes to AI. Uh, and by the way, that's not the first time. Um, artificial intelligence in the modern era has been around since the 1950s. And the same exuberance that we're seeing today was present in the 1980s. And when a lot of the um, amazing commercial products failed to materialize, uh, funding was taken away. Um, you know, so it's something to keep in mind. But but the issue is that the government has a transactional relationship at best with the Valley. Um, these companies are the government's clients. Um, you know, investors expect returns and are putting undue pressure on these companies to commercialize their products as soon as possible. And the market is, you know, fickle, um, in part because of weirdness right now in Washington, D.C. This is not good going forward. So I actually do not believe that these nine companies are evil. I don't believe that the G-Mafia are trying to intentionally harm any of us. I think it's just a circumstance of our current um, situation that uh, because we have no culture of long-term planning, it's not part of our federal government, it's not part of most of these companies, um, you know, we don't have long-term rigorous um, strategic planning. And so everybody's sort of, you know, um, doing what they think is, is best for themselves. We see exactly the opposite happening in China, where there is uh, a long history of, of long-term planning. It's part of the governance culture. Um, and there is an incredibly smart uh, person right now at the helm. So Xi Jinping is very, very bright. Um, he understands technology. And he is in the process of exporting um, Chinese AI and the various... Uh, systems that have been built with it, like you know, surveillance and monitoring systems, out to other vulnerable countries with author author authoritarian um, leaders. So that's, that's what has me concerned. All right. We have a couple of questions from Twitter that actually touch on both these questions around the lack of planning as well as China. So let's go there. Arsalan Khan points out that just today, Google announced that it was disband that it is disbanding its board to check for AI ethics. What do you think about that? And what should companies be doing to do the right thing, essentially? Sure. So that actually happened a couple of days ago, and it had been in progress. This was not an internal board. So some big companies have... Um, you know, internal C-suite um, ethicists uh, with departments that are integrated throughout the rest of the organization. This was not what Google did. So Google assembled a fairly small board, um, an advisory board um, that had no, uh, no real teeth 
Um, and, and this was intended to be a group of people to share knowledge within, uh, you know, within the rest of the organization. Um, it was a strangely assembled group of people. Um, if I were to put together a group of um, people to provide serious feedback on ethics, but also on the, again, the longer term implications of, you know, a transformational technology like artificial intelligence, this would not have been the group of people that I put together. Um, and as far as I know, there were some, uh, there was a little bit of backlash uh, because of some of the politics of, of those people who were appointed. Uh, and basically after a week after it, it started, um, you know, it's now gone. Here's what I will say. So uh, most companies publish some kind of statement of values. And uh, you know, I, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, IBM, you, you can sort of look around on their websites and their corporate communications materials, and you'll get some sense of what the corporate values are. That is very different from stating in a granular way um, what a company's positioning is on how decisions are made about artificial intelligence. Um, we just don't see a lot of companies taking that piece of, of this very seriously, not the G Mafia and certainly not outside. Um, in in my book, I you know seeing that this was a problem, um, I developed a list of fifteen um, questions that would become the basis for that ethics statement, ethics and value statement within an organization. Um, you know, as as a as a way to get started, you know, but we we just we just don't see enough action um, in in any real meaningful way. And again, why? Like, let's be skeptical. It seems pretty. It seems like a no-brainer. So why wouldn't Amazon and Google and you know why wouldn't they just come up with like this is our position on ethics and AI? These are the people who are going to make sure that we are, um, you know, this is our accountability group, and we're going to go all in. Why isn't that happening? Because it means that we have to make some short-term financial sacrifices um, in the process. And again, the street doesn't like that. Are you a pessimist? <laughs> Or an optimist? No, no, I'm neither. I'm a pragmatist. You know, my, my job is numbers. So I, I work with data all day long, and I'm, I would say that I'm very passionate uh, about this particular subject because I'm, I'm having a hard time building out a model that doesn't end in either, you know, a bad future or a catastrophic future. Um, but I'm, I am not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a natural-born dystopian thinker. Um, I'm a I'm a I'm a pragmatist who 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 understands that we all have agency in the future and the future is not already preset, um, but that if we want great outcomes, we have to put in the hard work in advance. So I often tell people that creating, you know, like like uh, if you you know just like a uh, just like great marriages, um, the future takes an extraordinarily um, you know, extraordinary hard work. So if you think about people in your life that you know who have been married, who have been like legitimately happily married for decades, um, typically, you know, the hallmark of that, the hallmarks of that marriage include things like compromise and transparency and being authentic and keeping each other accountable and like, you know, all of that stuff that, that's hard to do, but you know, you have to do in order to make that relationship work. Um, it's the same when it comes to planning out our futures. Uh, you you have to be willing to put in 
really hard work. You have to make short-term sacrifices for the greater good. You have to be, um, you know, willing to compromise, uh, spend time on things that you know, that are tedious, like all that stuff. Um, but if but if we're willing to do that together, not just in the United States but across our geographic country lines, then then yeah, we could have an amazing future. And there is potential. I mean, some of the stories that you're hearing about how AI will do all of these amazing things, they're absolutely plausible, but they're not just going to show up fully formed. We got to put in the work now to make sure that those things happen. Okay. On that subject of the, the optimist, the optimistic view of humans cooperating, we have a perfectly timed question from Frank Diana, who has been a guest on this show before. He's the chief futurist at TCS, which is one of the largest computer services firms in the world, might even be the largest one, I'm not sure. And Frank says this, he, in your book, he's reading your book, you map out prescriptive steps to take to ensure that AI enables human flourishing. China is critical to this outcome. Do you see a path to China cooperating? Yes. Um, I don't know that that's, that path is going to be achievable with this current um, administration. Uh, so I'll give you a quick PSA. Uh, I'm politically independent. Um, so with that being said, you know, I think we've had too many instances on the global stage um, of making promises and pointing fingers and pulling out of agreements that at this point for, for this, you know, for the Trump administration to suggest that there's going to be some new big international coalition, I, I think everybody would roll their eyes and collectively probably laugh at that. So it may not happen with this administration. However, um, I think that there are a couple of possibilities going forward. So one of the, one of the tactical suggestions that I'm making is the formation of a, uh, international coalition um, that is primarily incentivized using uh, economics. So the organization I've named Gaia, the Global Alliance on Intelligence Augmentation, and um, you know it would include member states from all around the world, just like a UN or an IAEA, for example. Um, but it would also include the big tech companies. And rather than it, rather than it functioning as a regulator. Instead, this this would be a global body charged with um, uh, developing the tools and assets and guardrails for the farther future. The problem with China is that China, China's economy is growing, and its population is growing. And you know what what we're all you know probably going to see soon um, is is China experience experiencing upward social mobility at a scale we've never seen before in modern human history. Um, so the only way that China comes to the table uh, and collaborates in a meaningful way is if China, China's economy still wins. Um, the only way that the United States comes to the table, I think, um, is if we can avoid the kinds of regulation that would stifle innovation and growth, which means that we need a different model. So we have a, you know, we have sort of like a, a blueprint if we look at, for example, an IAEA. Uh, or a UN, but but we need a different implementation of this. Um, so the organization, so Gaia would be charged with creating those guardrails, um, shoring up the bias and the data sets that everybody knows exists. Um, you know, doing some of the bigger risk modeling in a very cohesive way to you know and, and 
you know, if, if uh, certain pieces of the ecosystem advance, um, you know, what could that mean and how can we avoid problems uh, at the beginning? Um, you know, and what could the global standards look like so that everybody uh, can win in the, in the long term? Um, I know that's a big ask and it, it seems like, especially in this business environment, that there's no possible way that we would all come to the table with China. Um, and, but, I, but I think that it's worth a shot. Uh, the other, so, so that's one, uh, you know, one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is we just assume that China's never going to cooperate, um, that they see us as an impediment to their global ambitions, and we let China do its own thing. And uh, we um, bring together all of the other nations uh, around the, the world. And if we have enough of them uh, with enough people and enough uh, economic power, um, then, we, then collectively we have some leverage. And at that point, the best case scenario is we have the best and the brightest um, working on Gaia and they're doing what they were going to do anyways, in addition to um, planning for you know, cyber issues with China down the road. Very clever naming it after the Gaia hypothesis from uh, James Lovelock. So in practical terms, then, what should uh, we be doing? And when I, I say we, maybe break it down into uh, corporations, the government, even individual citizens. Sure. So, you know, I'd love to maybe address the business crowd because I don't um, I think they get left out of this conversation a lot. You know, every, so, so AI is, is already part and parcel of every single business, even a small business. Um, in some way, your organization is currently using artificial intelligence of some kind. And as the business grows and as your core functions grow, you're going to have to start making decisions. Some of those decisions may be whether to use Google's cloud or Amazon's cloud uh, or Microsoft's cloud. And increasingly, a lot of the, the AI functions that are super useful to businesses like predictive analytics, um, understanding customer sentiment, all of those things are going to be located in those clouds, which means that you have to start making smarter decisions that aren't just on a cost basis of which one of these companies you're going to hitch your, your, your wagon to. Um, because while they may offer open source AI systems, they're, they're not free, um, you know, and open source doesn't necessarily mean interoperable, which is my way of saying, you know, it's not like you can just take all your stuff out uh, and, and port it over to somebody else's network down the road without a tremendous amount of hassle and, and cost and everything else. So I, I would argue that you, you have to get much, much smarter fast about what AI is, what it isn't, what it actually does, um, and, and what, you know, and, and uh, be able to distinguish between all of that and a lot of the marketing promises companies are making. Um, because when it comes to AI, there's a lot of misplaced optimism and fear. And, and too many times I'm seeing the executive leadership in, in organizations all around the world, um, either making terrible decisions on AI or assuming that it's not here yet, that there's some event horizon off in the distance and they're just going to wait. Um, that's, a, that's a terrific way to get left behind. Um, or, or worse, or worse, um, to have to make a decision under duress. So, 
so the, so I wrote the book for, um, for people who, who are in organizations who, who sort of need to get smart fast on AI. Um, but the book is also for people who are, uh, you know, in those three capitals, uh, the finance folks, the, the government folks, and the, um, the, the tech folks. In our government and in every government, um, there has been talk about developing country-level AI regulations, which is a terrible idea. Um, first of all, any regulation that's going to have teeth has to be specific. And any super specific regulation with regards to something as fast moving as AI is going to wind up outdated or impossible to implement. Um, so there is a, you know, this, this is where sort of the, the, the levers of a democracy are um, showing some stress in this age of technology. So I think that we're going to have to develop a different way of thinking around this at our, at our government level. Um, we're going to have to develop policy that we've, you know, the kinds of policy we've never seen before. I have conversations a lot uh, with various parts of the government and military who are very reluctant um, to do anything different. They don't like change. Um, but if we don't start making some changes and figure out new ways to collaborate where there are in, uh, economic incentives involved to, to get the, the big nine, or at least our six of them, to the table um, in, a, in a voluntary way where they want to help out, um, then, then you know, it's, we're going to have all kinds of problems. So one of the, when you talk about uh, business people needing to become more educated and make choices around which cloud they use, for example, that seems like an extremely tall order because essentially what you're asking them to do is in addition to whatever functional requirements they have, they need to overlay this kind of almost altruistic view of where they think the future of AI and the trajectory of these companies is going. And for your average business person that is, A, not knowledgeable about uh, about these trajectories, and B, simply trying to get the job done, you know, or I want to install a finance system or whatever it might be. Right. So, you know, any successful business does um, financial planning of some kind. So, you know, I can't, I mean, maybe that's, uh, I can't think of any example, you know, it, it would be impossible to run a business if you don't have some sense of what your, um, you know, outlays are, your capital outlays, your, your staffing costs, what your revenue projections are for the year. So, so that's an example of planning. And most companies do it on a quarterly or an annual basis. All I'm saying is add into your planning mix um, a slightly longer outlook. Uh, and again, like this is partially why I made my entire methodology available for free and, and open and made it open source because we don't do that in the United States, not just in business, but in general. Um, so, so I'm not saying like figure out the future of AI and then go toward it. Um, you know, what I'm saying is uh, don't allow others to make those critical technology decisions for you um, certainly not the vendors. The you know you you the vendors are never going to know you and your organization as well as you do. Um, and so, and to outsource this critical thinking and strategic planning to to just the IT department, um, you know, or just like a skunk works within the organization is also a mistake because you have to think about technology and things like um, process automation, which a lot of companies are now looking at. 
us when, you know, cause it's huge cost savings and um, there's a lot of promise there, but you have to do that through the lenses of HR and compliance and sales and marketing and like all the other business units. Um, so, so that means there has to be executive leadership and vision from the top on AI. Um, so the easiest thing everybody can do, like the one thing everybody could do today, um, you can either read my book and do this or go online and do it, uh, be able to explain succinctly to some other person what artificial intelligence is, uh, why it matters, and how it impacts your industry or your company. And that that whole entire exp- like that whole process of explaining should take less than five minutes. If you can do that, you're going to be so far ahead of everybody else. And if all of us could do that, we would be in so much. We would be in such a better position uh, going into the future than we are right now. Because where we are right now is constantly referencing, you know, uh, sci-fi images of artificial intelligence from pop culture, like Skynet from the Terminator, you know, or the the drones from from and the hosts from Westworld or, you know, any other number of books and, and movies and TV shows. Very briefly, because we're going to soon run out of time. I work with quite a lot of enterprise software companies, large ones and small ones. And the hype around AI is ridiculous. So any advice for software, for the major software, and even smaller ones, around how they talk about what they do. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, really glad you asked that question because I haven't had a chance to address it uh, at all with anybody yet. Yeah, the hype is real. It's real bad. <laughs> so, so, so you're right. Um, here's, again, like it's in meeting over the years with so many people who are working in the trenches, um, the, the heads of organizations advising some organizations. So, so here's my observation. Um, the people who are working in the trenches who are actually doing all of the building, um, you know, and the coding and the testing and the supervised learning and the research, um, you know, th- they will tell you that it's a slog. Everybody's over-promising and under-delivering um, and, that, and that, you know, all the crazy AI cool stuff is many, many, many years away. If you talk to researchers, um, you know, some of the more predominant researchers, they may tell you a different story, which is um, breakthroughs on the horizon, all kinds of great stuff happening. You know, we're going to see, you know, unimaginable successes here fairly soon. Um, so what's, what's going on between the two groups? Um, on the latter group, you know, some of these big name researchers, they need to attract funding, um, partially because a lot of countries around the world, including our own, have stripped all of that foundational research funding from the budget. So we, we don't have, outside of the military, we have no budget for fundamental research in AI, which means these researchers have to get it from somewhere else. Where are they getting it from? The big six, the, the six companies, the G-Mafia in the United States. Um, you know, and they have to get excited. Uh, but in order for them to get excited, they have to make sure that they've got the funding. And where does that come from? The investors uh, who then want to see, you know, returns and commercial products. Um, uh, when it comes to the people working in the trenches, you know, oftentimes they're not aware of the bigger picture or what piece their little thing that they're working on fits into. And 
for anybody who remembers high school biology or chemistry, you know, or physics, where you you did any kind of experiment, you remember what it was like over and over and over and over again, building and testing and scrapping and learning and you know in order to make something work. Um, and for that reason, I think everybody's time frames are out of whack. So that's where again, it's good to take a much more comprehensive picture um, and view of what everything looks like, um, and and to not worry about what exact year will the robots come to take the jobs okay. uh, or any of the other, you know what I mean? Yeah. But instead focus on um, how fast we really are moving and, and what all of that implies. Okay. Uh, so you'll have to come back another time and we'll, we'll dive deeper into the relationship of the software vendors and how this works. Uh, it happens to, it's where I spend a lot of my time. But we have to move on because we are going to run out of time. We have another question from Twitter. Let's turn our attention back to the government. You mentioned earlier that uh, government level or uh, country level regulation or policy is not a good thing. We had on this show uh, Lord Tim Clement Jones, who is was the head of the... UK House of Lords Select Committee on AI. I say was because they, that committee did its job and it's no more as far as I know. So let's take that and, and, and oh, and I'll say, and he was a good guy and he seemed to have great recommendations and his heart was, is absolutely in the right place with this. And then we have Frank Diana again, who on Twitter, who's asking, Amy, in your conversations with government, do you see any signs of movement at the policy level? And any indication that there's an appreciation for the massive shifts on the horizon? Government is big. Uh, and, and here is what I will say. Um, I, there are people working within state the State Department, the White House, um, you know, many other branches of our government and military who I think are extraordinarily bright, who understand the sense of urgency, who also happen to have a deep um, and broad knowledge of artificial intelligence, who themselves uh, come out of, you know, engineering and, and computer science fields, um, who, who do care, who are working on policy. Um, that being said, uh, there are lots of people who are also part, part of this process who are political appointees or wound up in these positions for various other reasons um, who have no knowledge uh, or understanding, um, you know, and, and under other circumstances that may not be as critical an issue. However, we have no executive leadership on artificial intelligence. We have no national strategy. We have no national point of view. We have no coordination between the agencies who are working on this. We have no singular person or department who is in charge of long-term strategic planning. Therefore, these incredibly hardworking civil servants who probably could be making a bunch more money out uh, you know, in the Valley or somewhere else, you know, to some extent are spinning their wheels. Um, and, and that to me is uh, terrifying because of what we're seeing, you know, happening in China. And I will also say that that exact comment that I had on our national leadership on AI 
um, is analogous to uh, biotechnologies like CRISPR, you know, and, and, and other fields. So we have no funding. Um, we have no national strategy or leadership. And this is probably the worst possible time um, for us to be as a country in this position because it also impacts our allies overseas, which is why anytime from the government call, anytime anybody from the government calls, um, I always show up uh, because I feel like a, I have a, a sense of civic and moral duty to, to, to help out. Um, but it is becoming more and more difficult for me to... Anyhow, there, there's a, there is a lot of movement. There are a lot of smart people we are not moving nearly as quickly as we should. And the progress that is, has been made thus far, I think, is being celebrated um, too quickly. You sound like the committed public policy makers and government servants that I know. Uh, another question for you as we finish up. I think this is a good one to end on from Twitter. And this is from the at CXO Talk account. Why should we care about the consequences and impact of the way we use AI? Why is it so urgent that we deal with this now? And I'll just add by extension, Amy, why don't you just leave well enough alone? The free market works absolutely perfectly. We have diversity of opinion. And just like, why are you bothering with this? Why bother? <laughs> um, because the free market is failing us at the moment. So we've seen, again, you know, I, I will just address the the six companies that are based in the United States. Um, we are seeing an extraordinary amount of consolidation, um, and there there are again just a few num a few people, relatively speaking, um, with limited worldviews who do not have the same you know who statistically speaking do not probably have the same backgrounds as you and me, um, who are under pressure to commercialize their work. They are making existential decisions. Um, for all of us. And by existential, I mean they are, they are in a position to fundamentally alter human existence. So I'm not talking about, again, like killer robots that are coming to get us all. Um, instead, I'm talking about much more insidious um, decisions, decisions that are intended to optimize our lives by nudging us, for example, on our digital devices or by optimizing work streams within organizations. Um, you know, without doing the long-term planning. And so my concern is without any transparency, without the collaboration that we might see in other cases, without an influx of funding uh, from the federal government, without coordination between governments and organizations and companies elsewhere in the world, um, that we are going to wind up seeing new types of di discrimination in which all of us are affected. Uh, we're going to see ourselves disenfranchised in ways that could have been prevented. Um, and, and we're going to, at some point, discover that all of this cool, whiz-bang, smart technology, in a way, is, is making our lives um, a lot more miserable. Uh, and, and that doesn't even include uh, what the ramifications are if China manages to, to um, pull off what I think it is attempting to do to reshape the global world order, because that impacts your could impact your ability to travel in the future. It could impact your business's ability um, to, to do business, not just in China, but in other countries that China has partnered with around the world. I mean, we, we are talking about significant change, existential change that will not happen tomorrow or the next few years, 
but will sort of happen over a period of you know five to seven decades. Um, so the best way to think of us collectively right now um, is is the proverbial uh, frog in in the pot of water. Um, we, we are the frog. We are in a pot of water, and the stove is on, and it's going to heat up slowly over a very very long period of time. And slowly over that period, we'll start to feel hot um, until ultimately we meet our demise. Um, I, I know that's a sad way to end the, the show, um, but I, you know, I don't know. We, we have to stop having fantastical conversations about AI. We have to stop fetishizing the future. It is time that everybody understands what this technology actually is, how it works, what is at stake how it impacts your business, and how this could forever change your life, your kids' lives, your, your grandchildren's lives, um, because it doesn't have to be negative. We have an opportunity to do great things and to live in a terrific world, one that's far better than we're living in today. And that's what I think is we could do. I think that's on our horizon, but only if we make better decisions and exercise creative um, you know, and, and better leadership uh, right now. Wow. I bow down to Amy Webb. Amy, thank you so much for taking your time to, to be with us today. Thank you. These questions were amazing. Thank you so much for having me on. So we have been talking with she who shall be known as the amazing Amy Webb. She wrote this book called The Big Nine. It's, it's one of the most outstanding books that I've seen about AI and the AI future and what should be done. Everybody, thank you for watching. Right now, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe to our newsletter. Next week, we're talking with the president and chief marketing officer of AT&T Business. So maybe I should ask him about some of, these, uh, some of these questions as well. Amy Webb, thanks again, everybody. Thank you for watching and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.